I went to a party uh, at UCLA, would have been 1966, and it was uh, predominantly black people. That's my Uncle Robert. He grew up in L.A. in the 1950s and 1960s. And it was early in the party before the real music and dancing party started. And the woman who was hosting the party uh, yells out, can somebody turn on the light? And I see what looks like an arm reach from the opposite side of the room, 10, 12, 15 feet it looked like, and hit the light switch. It stands out as a memory because, man, the guy was long. I'd never seen anybody with a reach like that before. And it was uh, Lou Alcindor. And I just love this image of a literal wallflower, like someone who's trying to blend in but can't help but to stand out. Because we're, of course, talking about the man who would become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the NBA's all-time leader in points scored, a six-time NBA champion, the finals MVP twice, the league MVP six times, and a 19-time All-Star. That is a wild list of accomplishments. (laughs) Yeah, and he did it because he was the king of the skyhook, and he played in the league for a solid two decades, which is unheard of. But when people are talking about who's the NBA's greatest player of all time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar actually doesn't come up all that much. This week on Binge Sesh, we're going to try to figure out why. Welcome to Binge Sesh. This season, we're diving into the stories behind HBO's winning time, the saga of the Showtime era LA Lakers. I'm Kareem Maddox, professional basketball player and kinda named after Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I'm Matt Brennan, TV editor of the Los Angeles Times. I'm named after the Catholic saint, I guess. St. Matthew, one of my favorites. So, Matt, if you had to sum up the public line on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, what would you say? I think it depends on how charitable the person that you're asking is. I think a charitable person would say that he was aloof, Above the fray, cold, not interested in engaging with the fans. I think less charitable people would have described him as an asshole. Your sentiment actually is summed up by Los Angeles Times columnist Bill Plaschke. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the greatest, least loved player in Laker history. He's just so distant so hard to embrace and it's sad sad to me he's gotten more affectionate as the years have gone on but you can just tell at Laker games when someone one of the former Lakers walks into the house what the cheers are like they see James Worthy they go crazy they see Coop they go crazy they see Magic go crazy they see Kareem, yeah. It's really sad. And it's that's the narrative that has been written for him. And he's brilliant. Think about it. He's, statistical-wise, he's the best Laker ever. Yet, would somebody even say he's a top five Laker of all time? I don't know. Because of his popularity. 
that's how I think he'll be remembered here as kind of aloof, brilliant, bold, strong, and very unembraceable. It's interesting because the conversations that we've had with people that we've interviewed for the podcast have tended to focus on the outside perception of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I think maybe what we're trying to add in this episode is a little bit more of like, what would Kareem say? That a lot of the discomfort he felt wasn't just not being comfortable with being famous, although that may be the case, but being uncomfortable having to walk this line between being this star NBA player and being someone who had real and legitimate objections to the way that American domestic and foreign policy was going and the way that most professional sports tried to skirt or avoid that, Kareem would be more in the category of Muhammad Ali or, say, Spencer Haywood, who stood up uh, to the NBA in order to get drafted straight out of high school. Rachel Oz Myers, the author of Race and Sports and an expert in this subject, talked to us about this. He was too political. When you think about sort of this... Um, sort of pre-Kareem or like Kareem as sort of the, the measure bar, um, you see a lot more athletes that had this kind of solidarity and, and knowledge of, of those who came before them, you know, whether it was, you know, Wilma Rudolph and Jesse Owens and Muhammad Ali and, and the fight and the fight and the fight. So how do you find someone who can shine a light on one of the most elusive, misunderstood, and righteous figures in NBA history? That's coming up right after the break. Welcome back. Matt, so I think the search for an actor that could play Kareem Abdul-Jabbar kind of represents what it's like to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar himself, if that makes sense. Um, can you elaborate on this idea? Because I, I like it, but I don't have any idea where you're going with it yet. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Listen to Winning Time co-creator Jim Hecht describe his relief when the team finally found Solomon Hughes, who's the actor who plays Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's just, it's so lucky. Like, how do you find a guy who's like seven foot, who played college basketball, who's also a professor, you know, at a major university, and, and, and by the way, also just like one of the best people I've ever met. Like, you could not find a nicer guy on the planet. Solomon Hughes grew up in Southern California. I, I lived in Riverside, and Riverside is approximately an hour outside of L.A., during the era of the 80s, during the Lakers' dominance. Um, and so we were big fans uh, as a family, watched them uh, pretty religiously on television. And Kareem was the, the literal and figurative center of our appreciation for the team um, because of his history, um, because of just how he, the, the contributions he's made to the world, the way he's stood up for uh, the oppressed, um, and, you know, how he always was resistant to this idea of being boxed into just 
being a basketball player. And that's kind of why Solomon is sort of uniquely qualified to play the role of Kareem. He's always thought of himself as more than just a basketball player. I feel like I had this experience when I played basketball where I was, I was often told by coaches that I didn't love the game to the point where I only thought about the game. Hughes has a PhD in education and has been a professor at both Duke and Stanford. It's like a pretty legit resume. As a, <laughs> as a former academic, I can tell you that that is an enviable resume. Yeah, and, and he was fascinated by some of the more complex parts of Kareem's story. Every time I learn something new about him, I feel it, it just it crystallizes that this man is one of the most fascinating people in the history of this country, just thinking about it, just the width and the breadth of, of how he has contributed as a writer, as a spokesperson, as an activist. His book, Giant Steps, his autobiography, that's one of the first big books that I read as a kid growing up, right alongside the autobiography of Malcolm X. I think Kareem has written like 14 books. There's books that he, where he's talking about history, black history. And so, so I wanted to read what he wrote about himself. I was also interested in the things that he was interested in. So obviously, if you're a fan of Kareem's, you know that jazz music is really central to who he is as a person. And he had this famous uh, collection of jazz uh, jazz albums. And um, the fact that he knew Thelonious Monk when he was when he was coming of age in New York, it's like, what? I, I, I always joke that if that's the one thing Kareem could brag about. He has the most interesting story at every cocktail party he goes to. Right? But then he's also a six-time MVP, you know, an NBA champion, a jazz aficionado, a writer, just such a such a complex, complex figure. Um, such a fascinating and influential figure. So, you know, I, I wanted to I wanted to learn about what he said about himself. I wanted to learn about the ecosystems that he came up with in. So reading about New York, especially in that era, was important to me. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was operating in a culture that made it uncomfortable for him to embrace that complexity. As a Black man in America in the 1960s and 1970s, and as someone who spent his entire adult life in the spotlight. I mean, there were so many different things that were going on. It's like, when you think about sports writers, especially in that era, right, not many sports writers looked like him. So he's interacting with these journalists who who kind of see him from a, from a distance, right? And, and the reality is, like, there's especially in that era, right? The backdrop that, that racism, is, et cetera, is to so many of these different conversations. You talk about the hyper-visibility of being someone like Kareem. You have these political perspectives that make you somewhat of an outlier. You're also seven too. And so just this idea of like, how to like exist in this space where you're like, where everything you say is scrutinized, um, but where you ultimately, you know, your vision for this planet, for this world, is that people get along and that you know, people can enjoy a life of, of equity. Solomon Hughes talks about how Abdul-Jabbar prioritized his beliefs above his basketball career and above his own personal gain, even before he was an established pro. When you think about the decisions that Kareem made, when he went to the Cleveland Summit as a sophomore in college to essentially support Muhammad Ali in his protesting the Vietnam War, the risk involved in that, right? I mean, it's, it's just such a profound amount of risk, especially as this is the era where 
the commercial opportunities, right? The, the, the brand opportunities are starting to come together for athletes. And the fact that, you know, he went and was, you know, really front line in this conversation. Matt, I came across a story about Kareem that illustrates this point almost perfectly. So when Kareem was turning pro, he had two offers, one from the Milwaukee Bucks, one from the Brooklyn Nets. And he told both teams that he was only going to take one offer. And when they did make the, their offers and he chose Milwaukee, Brooklyn made a counteroffer that was like double the money and offered him 5% of the Brooklyn Nets franchise. And Kareem turned the turned it down and kind of scolded the ABA's commissioner at the time because he said this is not a respectable way to do business. So we're talking about someone who turns down what must now be worth in the tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in order to protect his integrity. And this not because of some kind of external system of rules, but because of a rule that he imposed on the negotiation process himself. It's it's interesting. I, I think talking about his business acumen and this moment of the leagues merging leads to an important broader point. Because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the league's biggest star at this transitional moment that we've been talking about all season. In the league, in the culture, in business, in American politics. And until you unpack all of those, you can't really know Kareem either. Which is what we're going to get to right after this break. Welcome back. You know, Kareem, it occurs to me that the more you learn about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and his long career, the more likely you are to reconsider your preconceived notions about him. Okay, why do you say that? Jim Hecht told us a story that I think sort of gets at this. He did tell people to F off, you know, when they asked for autographs. He did. I, I as a kid, had a run-in with Kareem, where, as my dad tells it, when I was standing outside the forum and, and waiting for an autograph, Kareem was basically not going to stop. And I basically remember seeing knees come at me and my dad lifting me out of the way. And, uh, and he, you know, he didn't love, didn't seem to have a great love for fans or the media or, or any of those people. And so, you know, not only does Solomon bring a lot to it, but, you know, the writers, our writers, I think, really dug in beyond that surface level of Kareem and what people know and see. In Showtime, the book on which Winning Time is based, Jeff Perlman you know, says some things like that Kareem hates white people that probably paint with too broad of a brush. But he also includes stories that, you know, you might not know about Kareem. Like at one point, his house burned down. Yeah. At one point, his his manager like fleeced him of a bunch of money. He had a he had a coach who called him a racial slur when he was in high school, like you start to get a sense of someone who had been wounded enough times to justify their self-protective measures. Yeah, and I think Jeff Perlman, when he wrote Showtime, probably leaned too hard into that mean 
kind of image Abdul Jabbar, but since it seems like he's kind of softened a little bit. I almost feel like I was a little too hard on him in the book. That guy was a museum piece from the time he was very young. And everywhere he walked, how's the weather up there? How's the weather up there? What's it like up there? And after a while, you just want to start ignoring people. So it, it's a classic example, especially with the black athlete being labeled as like brooding and moody. And why is he always scowling? And and the truth of the matter is he was just tired of people asking him, how what's the weather like up there? And um, staring at him all the time. And and then, of course, he changes his name from Lou Alcindor to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar while he's in Milwaukee. Uh, everyone who's white and in the NBA discourages him from doing so. A lot of people refuse to call him Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They still call him Lou Alcindor, just like Muhammad Ali got that with Cassius Clay. And um, he just like built up this wall of distrust. And again, like I think I was too hard on him because if you really think about it, it makes sense. Winning time picks up when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is 32 years old. And to this point in his life, he'd really actually been through a lot. In 1967, Abdul-Jabbar sat alongside Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, and Bill Russell to support Muhammad Ali as he was protesting being drafted to the Vietnam War. At the time, Abdul-Jabbar was just 20 years old. And the next year was 1968, and that's when he refused the spot on the U.S. Olympic team, which is a guaranteed gold medal, especially with him on the team. And he refused that spot because he was protesting the treatment of black people in America. So on the one hand, Abdul-Jabbar clearly considers himself as coming from this long line of powerful civil rights activists who were also athletes at the top of their professional sports. And on the other hand, he has to watch as a new generation of players comes in and maybe benefits from some of the doors that he's opened. And that's something that Rachel Laws Myers talks about further. And then you kind of get to um, 80s into 90s and you start, you see OJ Simpson and you see Michael Jordan and you start to see this booming profitability off of not being political. I've always seen seen Kareem more of as this like serious, really kind of wise man who has always had, I think, this kind of political lens. He's written that he was he was really influenced um, by the leaders of the 50s and the 60s, the Muhammad Ali, the Malcolm X. There's something to be said about the real choice and kind of act of, of bravery, of putting it on the line and being willing to sacrifice. Even with, you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in the 68 Olympics, right? Stripped of medals, all of this, et cetera. Fast forward, right? They're in, they're being honored in the Athletic Hall of Fame and like, we're so sorry and we, our mistakes. And then also the very real Again, like choice when you're faced with like, hey, here's here's a, some money for this or this, that, and the third, or here's this opportunity. And if you'd like this opportunity, we're going to set some parameters on how you're going to engage, right? And that might be, you're not going to talk about the political situation, right? You're, you're not going to mention X, Y, and Z. Winning Time highlights this generational divide when Spencer Haywood goes to visit Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at his house and, and talks about the tension that 
has arisen between the sort of two factions here. I saw his face when he was hugging you, hanging off your neck like a damn koala bear. <laughs> you know I can't dig the clown show. <laughs> Dancing and grinning for the crowd. <laughs> so you mad because he happy? You know it's more than that. When we came up, we put it on ourselves to stand for something more. We took the booze. We took the hate. Black man, you took the league to the Supreme Court. It was a racist-ass rule, and you made a difference. How the culture was changing under Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's feet informed how the writers of Winning Time sort of shaped his character in the show, according to Jim Hecht. And now he comes into Los Angeles in the 80s, and all of a sudden it's just about, like, what color BMW do you have? If you're standing there in Los Angeles in 1980 on the verge of the Reagan Revolution, and you open the paper, and it really did, like, he talked about Make America Great Again, that has to be so hugely disappointing. You know, I can understand why you'd have some, you know, reticence about dealing with people in that culture at all. I just feel like people don't know what to make of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like, they think he's moody and broody, but also brilliant. And they understand where he comes from. And they don't judge him for, you know, how he interacts with the public. I mean, the thing that occurs to me that you're, like, kind of dancing around is the difference between being respected and being loved. Yeah. Like, the way that people talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar comes from a place of respect it's sort of like logic based it's a brain feeling yeah whereas the way that people talk about magic is is love that it's like a heart feeling like here's bill plasky again he's a brilliant pioneer and such integrity such strength all he's been through his fight for social justice he wrote he wrote he wrote a story for our paper that just got a million views I and mean, people couldn't get enough of it can't get enough of his wisdom but he never had the magnetism the sports world doesn't seem to be giving kareem Abdul-Jabbar his due but his social justice work and his life's mission has been recognized so in 2012 he was selected by then secretary of state hillary clinton to be a us global cultural ambassador and then in 2016, President Barack Obama awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So it's like his impact is stronger off the court, despite being the best scorer that the NBA has ever seen. So I think, I mean, the argument that we're making then is that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's really important political advocacy work over the years and his interest in culture has actually unfairly taken him out of the goat conversation that's what it feels like does it not feel like that am i am i off there oh well i'm not having the goat conversation <laughs> regularly <laughs> in my day-to-day life so i don't really know True. it occurs to me that both michael jordan and matt johnson have produced major docu-series about their own careers. <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has produced docu-series about major black historical figures. <laughs> like, that's a very 
distinct approach to one's sort of cultural power in the world. And I don't think you have to make kind of a moral judgment on one side or the other about that approach, but I think that contrast is telling. For someone who doesn't know basketball very well, there were two players in this story who I knew their names going in. And I would recognize those names by first name alone, Magic and Kareem. And the one who I feel like I really didn't have a good understanding of until watching the show and talking to you about him is Kareem. Magic feels like more of a known quantity to me. Maybe that's because he wears his heart on his sleeve a little bit more. Maybe that's because he was prominent in a slightly later era where I was like paying a little more attention. Maybe it's because of the HIV diagnosis and the sort of life that he's lived after his career. But to me, the fact that Kareem could be known by his first name alone and yet have very little known actually about him kind of says it all. Binge Sesh, Winning Time, was created by Matt Brennan and is produced by Matt Brennan, Kareem Maddox, that's me, and Alex Higgins. Scored and mixed by Mike Heflin. Our editor is Lauren Rabb, and our executive producers are Jasmine Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. Alex Higgins composed our theme music. Thanks to Tova Weinstock, Alston Snag, Julia Turner, Christian Stone, and Village Workspaces. I'm your co-host, Matt Brennan. Catch you next week. Do you, do you have a favorite actor of all time? Oh god. Um Yeah, probably. Um like Cary Grant. Dude, Cary Grant? Yeah, why would I mean, don't don't say it like that. Do you know who Sean Connery is? That is Connery not a, that is, is not a strange selection for favorite actor of all time. He's have dashing. You heard of Sean Connery? He's funny. He's uh completely charming he was in a bunch of great movies he could do drama he could do comedy he worked with all the great directors of his era was he ever bond no so how could he be the greatest actor of all time if he was never bond i am gonna shut off the zoom if you don't stop (laughs) (laughs) he cary grant is basically like the um the proto bond he was bond before bond he was that suave and sexy without bond existing yet See, but this is the generational difference, right? This is like, like who was more dominant, Will Chamberlain or Shaq? Who's better, Cary Grant? But now you got Daniel Craig. I mean, that guy. I thought you were talking about the generational difference between you and I, and I was about to punch uh, you through the (laughs) screen. (laughs) Not that much older than you. So you know that the 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 you know on one hand I guess you could argue that Cary Grant did it well. This is how these go conversations go, you know. Yeah, although I would say that the I mean the the difference here, and what I think makes the sports one almost more interesting, is like statistics can give you a sense, or maybe it's an illusion of objectivity. Whereas, right. like there isn't. I mean, I guess with an actor you could kind of compare like who won the most Oscars, Oscars. but as we have discovered, the Oscars are a flawed thing. Uh, um, They have their issues, don't they? And and so, like, there's not really any... There truly is no kind of, like, one-to-one comparison that you can make between actors. It's it's purely a heart-gut reaction. Right, 
Totally. Yeah, no, totally. Okay, but it was fun, we have though. gone so far off the rails here. Binge session.